University of California Television presents this podcast of Opera Talk, Boris Godunov, featuring San Diego Opera's Nick Rivellis. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. We've covered an awful lot of ground in this series, talking about operas old and new, discussing opera traditions, uh, stories behind the writing of these great works, and including interesting anecdotes about the composers' lives. We've talked about French and Italian opera, German opera and operetta. We've even talked about Czech opera and a number of newer American works. But here's something we haven't touched upon and might be something new for you. We've never had the opportunity to explore Russian opera, and what a great, rich tradition it is. Opera came to Russia much as it did to France, Germany, and England. Via traveling opera troops that originated in Italy, the earliest arriving in 1731 and performing at the imperial court of the Empress Anne. Just to give you some perspective, this was at the same time that Handel was actively producing opera in London, Vivaldi in Venice, Hasse in Dresden, and Rameau in Paris. Opera flourished during the reign of Catherine the Great. Under her aegis, important Italian composers like Cimarosa and Paisiello gave numerous premieres, including Paisiello's Barber of Seville. It was inevitable that Catherine's French-styled court eventually turned to French opera, and for a very long time that was the only style of opera that one could hear in the Russian capital. Native Russian composers were all but ignored, and in fact cruelly discriminated against in favor of European artists. But by the middle of the 19th century, a new wind was blowing. Thanks to the efforts of native composers who were inspired by their own national heritage, a new genre of opera began to appear, Russian opera. Now that sounds logical, but given the emphasis and popularity of Western European fashions at the time, the very concept of Russian opera was considered revolutionary. And that's where our discussion begins, with a group of composers who believed that the stuff of their national identity, their folk traditions, and the rhythm of their native language could give rise to a new kind of lyrical theater. At the center of that group of composers was a musically naive, rough-hewn military officer who was determined to write a national opera, despite his limitations as a composer. This was someone who had everything going against him, yet he did succeed in writing what has indeed become known as the Russian National Opera. His name? Modest Muzorgsky. The opera? Boris Gudunov. I'm Nick Ravellis. This is Opera Talk. As I said earlier, the roots of Russian opera are to be found in the imperial court life of the 18th century, focusing on the French and Italian models of opera that were performed there. There were some early operatic experiments with opera in the Russian language, but these were mostly zingspiels with sung numbers and spoken dialogue, as well as comic operas based on the French model that was so popular at court. But most people point to 1836 as the year of the real initiation of true Russian opera. 
That was the year of the premiere of Mikhail Glinka's A Life for the Tsar. It was the truly first grand opera produced by a Russian composer to a libretto in the Russian language, a work sung throughout with no spoken dialogue and produced on a grand scale. Glinka was also a minor nobleman who had the resources and the time to study music seriously and to make composition his life's work. Now, this is something that other Russian musicians didn't have the advantage of doing. A Life for the Tsar, written almost immediately after his return to Russia from Europe, was about the establishment of the Romanov dynasty through the sacrifice of the peasant Ivan Suzanin. Glinka's choice of a truly Russian subject invited the use of folk tunes in the score of the opera, but we shouldn't consider this piece nationalistic or even truly Russian simply because of the presence of a few native folk songs. Although it's exotically orchestrated, it really is more of a look backwards to the Italian style rather than a leap forward into what the mighty Kushka was about to develop. The mighty Kushka, literally the little heap, was a loose consortium of composers who sought to consciously reflect all things Russian in their compositions. Not only folk song, but native dance rhythms, the sound of folk instruments with or without the use of those actual instruments, the cadence of the Russian language, and the use of Russian fiction and history upon which to base their works. Generally speaking, their operas were either large historical epics, peasant comedies, or fairy tale operas. The composers, sometimes known in English-speaking circles as the Mighty Five, were Mili Balakirev, Cesar Kui, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, Alexander Borodin, and Modest Mussorgsky. Interestingly, all of these composers began with music as an avocation, almost as a hobby, and none of them had extensive training in music beyond the usual piano and singing lessons that were part of the everyday education of bourgeois Russian children. In fact, all of them had other jobs. Borodin was a distinguished chemist and physician by training, although he never practiced being a doctor because he fainted at the sight of blood. Kui was an engineer in the army who eventually rose to the rank of general. Mazorksky was also destined for a career in the military, as were many middle-class Russian boys. He eventually ended up working in a clerical position in the civil service, struggling with music on the side. Upon meeting Balakirev and Kui in the mid-1850s, he began to get excited about the possibility of dedicating his life to music. He took composition lessons from Balakirev and tried to excel as much as he could. His mighty five cohorts didn't really know what to think of him because of his lack of formal background in music. They were also appalled by his frequent bouts with alcoholism, his rough manner, and his blunt speaking style. Balakirev at one point even called him an idiot. But Buzorksky was intently determined to make his way in music and, above all, focused on the possibility of creating a truly national epic opera. Although Mussorgsky had very little training in classical music, he had bold ideas about melody, harmony, and orchestration, ideas that he tried to incorporate into his first forays into opera, a grand setting of the exotic tale Flaubert's Salambo, and a comic opera called The Marriage, based on a short story by Nikolai Gogol. Neither of these projects saw the light of day, but while working on them, he spent a lot of time grappling with the traditions and conventions of opera and answering for himself many of the hard questions that composers of opera have to face. Uh, 
One of the things that he solved in all this activity was a way to have his music conform to the rhythms and cadences of ordinary Russian speech, a novel idea for a time when a country was overrun with French opera. None of his time spent on Salambo and the marriage was wasted. Much of the music written for these projects was incorporated into Mussorgsky's first complete opera, the work that was to define Russian opera for the rest of the 19th century and well into the 20th. Boris Gudunov. By 1868, Mussorgsky was well into the composition of Boris. His dream was to write a work that would define a new national operatic style, a music drama that could easily proclaim its Russianness and still be accepted into the European canon. He found his inspiration in the play Boris Gudunov by Alexander Pushkin. Pushkin was, in fact he still is, considered Russia's answer to Shakespeare, the founder of modern Russian literature and the country's greatest poet. He revolutionized the use of language in his dramas, especially by using a more realistic approach to the way the peasant class communicated with each other. Mussorgsky adapted the Pushkin play himself, acting essentially as his own librettist. Using folk song materials and the orthodox liturgical music style for many of the people's choruses, he created a work that felt and sounded Russian through and through. He completed the score at the end of 1869 and gave it to the committee of the Imperial Theatres in hopes of a production. But he was disappointed when, in 1871, they ultimately rejected the work. The reason for the rejection was that the work lacked a principal female role. Although disappointed, he returned to the work with a new fervor, not only adding the role of the Polish Princess Marina as a love interest for Grigory, the pretender to the throne, but by adding two so-called Polish scenes and rethinking whole sections of the work in order to give it greater dramatic impact. The opera was so well received at a benefit concert performance at the Mariinsky Theater in 1873 that a full staging was demanded and it premiered there in St. Petersburg in 1874. Although it was a popular success, harsh criticism came from a rather unusual source. César Cui, One of the Mighty Five was also a music critic for the most influential St. Petersburg Daily, and he gave the performance an unfavorable review. This was probably an act of jealousy, but it essentially signaled the end of the Kushka, or the Mighty Five, as a force in Russian music. This brings up an interesting phenomenon. As I said earlier, those other four composers from the Mighty Five, Balakirev, Borodin, Kui, and Rimsky-Korsakov, didn't quite know what to do with Mussorgsky or how to understand his works. Although most of them acknowledged the great potential of the opera Boris Gudunov, they were extremely uncomfortable with what they viewed as the work's awkwardness, its bluntness, and rudimentary orchestration. After Mussorgsky's untimely death from alcohol-related illness at 42, they discussed at length the possibility of reworking some of the opera in order to save it, and put Russian art music in a more positive light to the rest of the world. Thus began the constant tinkering with the score that carries on even to this day. Rimsky-Korsakov reorchestrated it most famously for its first foray into the West 
and this was part of Sergei Diaghilev's tour of Russian arts, ballet, and opera in Paris at the beginning of the 20th century. But no fewer than five composers, among them Dmitry Shostakovich, had their own hand at correcting Mussorgsky's work. We're only now just beginning to hear and enjoy the composer's first thoughts on the opera in productions of that original 1869 version. And what we're discovering is that rather than being awkward and rudimentary, the work has a dark, rough-hewn character in perfect sympathy with its subject. It's completely different from anything that any other composer was creating at the time, music that typically had a kind of oriental or exotic flavor with splashes of brilliance in the score, like... Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Boris Godunov is, put simply, from another world and perfectly recreates the brutal life and times of Russia's greatest Tsar. In the prologue to the opera, the Russian people mill about outside the monastery where Boris is in seclusion. The young Fyodor I, heir to the throne, has died, and the boyars, the heads of all the Russian royal families, are pressing Boris to accept the role of Tsar. Not all of the people are enthusiastic about his taking the throne. But Boris accepts the throne, and in the next scene at the Kremlin Square in Moscow, Prince Shwiski one of his craftiest and most influential advisers, leads the people in calling for the Tsar to show himself. Boris enters and prays to God for guidance. Five years later, the old monk Pimen works on his history of Russia in his cell, accompanied by the novice Grigori. Pimen tells Grigori the story of the child Dmitri, the true heir to Fyodor I, who was murdered on orders from Boris. Asking how old the Tsarevich would be, Pimen tells him, as old as you are. After Pimen leaves for morning prayer, Grigori vows that the Tsar will be punished for this crime. We find ourselves then at an inn close to the Lithuanian border where Grigori is following two poor monks through the unfamiliar countryside. Grigori has decided to impersonate Dmitri, the heir to the throne, and gathers forces in Lithuania in order to dethrone Boris. But he realizes that as the monks get drunker, he will lose his guides. Suddenly, police arrive with a warrant for him, but through a clever ruse, he escapes. After a domestic scene in the Tsar's palace in the Kremlin, Boris reflects on the bad omens that seem to be a retribution for his murder of Dmitri. Prince Shuisky enters with news about a rebellion being led by the pretender, Dmitri, actually Grigori. Boris demands to know of Shuisky whether he was sure that Dmitri was murdered in the first place. He answers positively, saying that he saw the body. Alone, Boris goes into a paroxysm of guilt and collapses on the floor. In a square outside the Church of St. Basil, the Russian people hope for the victory of Dmitri and his popular rebellion. Boris comes out of the church to give alms to the poor and is confronted by a simpleton who complains that the local children have stolen his money. Why not have them killed as you did our Tsarevich, he asks. Prince Shwiski moves to have the simpleton arrested, but Boris stops him, asking only for the simpleton's prayers. 
In the final scene, the great hall of the Kremlin, the Duma has condemned the pretender Dmitri, vowing to execute him if he's ever caught. Shuisky, entering, claims that he's seen Boris have a hallucination of the dead Dmitri. But he's soon followed after by a distracted Boris himself, who addresses his boyars. Horrified, the boyars witness his madness and he calls for his son. After warning him to beware of the treachery at court and realizing that he's dying, he names his son's successor and dies with a prayer for forgiveness on his lips. That's the great bell sequence from Mussorgsky's most famous composition, Pictures at an Exhibition. The composer wrote the piece for solo piano, and 30 or 40 years afterwards, Maurice Ravel orchestrated it. But in the original, as you just heard, Mussorgsky perfectly recreates the sound of bells tolling in the tower of the great city gate in Kiev. What a wonderful sonic creation this is, using only harmony, and the sonorities of certain notes and chords on the piano, he comes as close to the sound of bells without actually using bells as any composer has ever come. There's a similar moment in the opera Boris, and it perfectly illustrates one of the things that I was talking about earlier that we find in Mussorgsky's musical style. A kind of boldness, harmonically and melodically, that we don't necessarily find in other composers of the era. This is what we hear at the top of the second scene outside the cathedral as the populace reacts to Boris's coronation. Again, using orchestral instruments, and for at least the first 30 bars or so, without the actual use of orchestral bells, we get the impression that we're standing there on a square in the Kremlin, in the cold, right there with all the Russian people awaiting the appearance of the new Tsar. This music makes a great impression, and it does everything that good opera composers seek to do in their compositions. Set the scene tell the story, give us the color, the environment within which the dramatic situation plays itself out. There are all manner of moments like this in the opera, but I want to draw your attention to something more fundamental in the score, Mussorgsky's use of authentic Russian elements. There's no question that this opera sounds Russian, in the same way that Verdi's Rigoletto sounds Italian, and Gershwin's Porgy and Bess sounds American. There are elements in the music the melodic contour, the rhythms, the textures, that share elements with authentic Russian folk songs, dances, and even liturgical music. 
Here's a great example. When we first meet the most important character in the score, the Russian people, it's in the very first scene, and we hear the disquiet and frustration during this time when they're wondering if Boris will be their next Tsar. Suddenly, they're interrupted by a religious procession, pilgrims traveling through the city. The music they sing is a perfect imitation of the texture and contour of Russian Orthodox church music. Another moment of orthodoxy comes in the coronation scene, as we hear in this excerpt. There's just something authentically Russian about the tune and the way Mussorgsky distributes the voices in the chorus. might ask if Mussorgsky uses folk-like material in his score, and yes, he does, by all means. Here's a perfect example. The monk Varlam's uh, song at the inn about a bloody uprising in Kazan, the tune itself, because of lots of repetition, resembles folk song. Here it is. But against the orchestral accompaniment, we have images of balalaikas and other native instruments against the tune, and the rhythm is like an infectious folk dance. Also special moments like this one at the beginning of the domestic scene in the palace, where we catch Boris's daughter, Zenya, bemoaning the recent death of her fiancé. In the orchestral introduction to the scene, the strings play in unison a tune that wavers somewhere between major and minor, giving us the feeling that the instruments are not playing in a key, but in some ancient Russian mode. It gives our ears the perfect color for the scene and captures Zenya's mournful attitude.
There are so many folk-like elements and moments in the score of Boris that it's hard to just point to one or two and expect you to get it. But those elements are found throughout the score and give it a very special character, a Russian character that's hard to pinpoint through analysis, but that our ears pick up right away as something foreign, something from another world, and from another time. Let me share a few resources that you can purchase or borrow from the library to help you to get to know this wonderful opera a bit better. There aren't many recordings of the 1869 version of Boris, and the lengthier versions of the score are pretty expensive. But here's an inexpensive alternative, a live recording of the 1872 version reorchestrated by Rimsky-Korsakov, a performance from the 1960s with Herbert von Karajan conducting the Vienna Philharmonic. It features the great Russian basso Nikolai Gyarov as Boris. The sound isn't great, but it's a terrific document of one of the classic Boris interpreters from a period when he was in perfect voice. The one recording of the 1869 version available today is this Phillips recording with Valery Gergiev conducting the Kirov Opera Orchestra and Chorus with Nikolai Putilin as Boris. This is an expensive set, but you'll get a complete libretto and, as a kind of bonus, the complete 1872 version in Mussorgsky's original orchestration as well. This is actually a wonderful package with terrific liner notes in the booklet explaining the various versions of the piece and a performance that's unbeatable. Now, there aren't a lot of choices available on DVD, or rather, I should say, there aren't a lot of good choices available. At the time of this taping, there's a DVD of a production that originated the Netherlands opera and filmed in Barcelona at the Liceu. Look for it. I'm sure it'll be wonderful as it has the great Finnish bass Mati Salminen in the title role and it's with surround sound and widescreen format. But until that arrives, there's this DVD from the Kirov with Gergiev conducting again and the English bass Robert Lloyd in the title role. This performance has the advantage of being played in Mussorgsky's original orchestration, although it is the 1872 version with the so-called Polish scenes. Not a lot of resources to help you with Boris, but just enough that are readily available from Amazon or Tower Online so that you can get to know the opera before you see it in the theater. It's too bad that there are so many variant versions of the piece. It makes it difficult for us poor mortals to find just the right gateway into this wonderful opera. But take a crack at it. I know you'll come to love it as I do. The 1869 original version of Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov is a great masterpiece. It has the advantage of being much shorter than the later 1874 version, but it's also tighter and helps the audience focus like a light beam on the two most important characters in the work, Boris himself, of course, and the Russian people. Get ready for an overwhelming dramatic experience when you see it. It's not to be missed. I'm Nick Ravellis, and I'll see you at the opera. 
You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.